would open your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. You're looking at chapter 2, the first 11 verses. And you can find our sermon text on page 887 if you're using a pew Bible. Once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come as your disciples this morning. Wanting to see more of Jesus. Needing to see more of his glory. So that we might be transformed. We come sinful and broken and hungry with nothing of our own that can actually change us. To whom else can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Open our eyes to behold even more wonderful things about him. Open the eyes of the blind that they too might have fellowship with us. A fellowship we share with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, I said that the, the whole of John's Gospel is an invitation to come and see Jesus for who he truly is in all of his glory. There are a lot of people and a lot of religions in the world who talk about Jesus. You know, he's a fairly good moral example, he's kind to children, he died for what he believed in. Some religions may even call him a a good teacher and prophet. 
Some might even hang his cross on their mirror as a good luck charm. He's even seen as a pretty cool guy among the rock and rap stars of the day. But the truth is that the overwhelming majority of these people and religions haven't truly beheld Jesus' glory. They haven't come and seen Jesus for who he truly is and to their own peril. Because apart from seeing Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, and believing in his name, you don't have eternal life. The Apostle John's main concern is that we don't continue in the same darkness as the rest of the world. In the same blindness the world has to the glory of Jesus Christ. John himself has really seen Jesus' glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he writes this testimony that you too might come face to face with the greatness of Jesus Christ. And believe in his name. Receive his grace. Trust in him for eternal life. Treasure his excellence even above life itself. So the invitation still stands this morning to come and see Jesus, to come out of the darkness of your sin and rebellion and blindness and death and ignorance and bitterness and see the one who truly gives life. We know that the invitation to come and see Jesus in all his glory still stands because in verse 11, John tells us precisely why Jesus changed the water into wine at Cana. He did it to manifest his glory, that the disciples might believe in him. And so verses 1 to 11 exist in your Bibles, not merely to fascinate you with a miracle, but to reveal the glory of the person of Jesus Christ himself. So what is it that we see when we look through this miracle to see the glory of Christ. I believe John wants us to see that Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy. Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy. That's the glory he wants us to see. Now that already implies that we've seen Jesus to be Israel's Messiah... If anyone's going to bring messianic joy, it's going to be the Messiah. And that's exactly how John presented Jesus back in chapter 1, as we saw last week. God anointed Jesus with the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 32. He was called the Messiah in verse 41. He was called the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets uh, wrote in verse 45. He's the son of God and king of Israel in verse 49. And he refers to himself as the son of man in verse 51. So John has already told us that Jesus is the Messiah. Now John's going to show us that Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy. Meaning that there's a joy associated with with his day of salvation and his coming kingdom. We see this not only through the miracle itself, but also through the circumstances leading up to the miracle. In fact, it's Jesus' own exchange with his mother that clarifies how we are to understand the miracle and what the miracle ultimately points to. 
So look with me at first at Jesus' exchange with his mother. And we'll draw out two truths which help us understand the meaning of the miracle. Verses 1 to 2 tell us that there's this wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus was invited to this wedding along with his mother and his disciples. And a problem rises in verse 3. They're out of wine. And so Jesus' brother, I mean, Jesus' mother Mary brings the matter to her son by saying, they have no wine. Then listen to Jesus' response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We see two truths here. The first truth is that Jesus does everything on his Father's terms. Jesus does everything on his Father's terms. We see this in Jesus' reaction to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I know many of you mothers enough to say that a response like that from one of your children simply wouldn't go very well. I think my wife put it like something like this, you know. Uh, can't do the neck thing, you know. But, but I should clarify that, that we shouldn't read into Jesus' response the sarcasm and disrespect that's often associated with the response woman in our culture. In fact, the next time Jesus speaks to his mother in this way, he does it while he's hanging on the cross, dying for her sins. And then he makes provision for her by saying, woman, behold your son. And then he speaks to the disciple whom he loved and said, behold your mother. And from that day forward, it says that John took, his, took care of, of Mary in his own. So it's not, Jesus isn't being disrespectful. He's not dishonoring Mary by saying woman. But I should also add that such a response from a son to his mother wasn't common in Jesus' day either. Even though it's not disrespectful, Jesus is still distancing himself from his mother in some measure. And his next few words tell us why. He says, my hour has not yet come. What hour? What does Jesus mean by my, my, by my hour has not yet come? Well, as we'll, and we'll be reading through the Gospel of John, we'll see this hour come up repeatedly throughout the Gospel. John will go on to show us that it's the hour of Jesus' death that's been ordained by His Heavenly Father. And nothing can happen to Jesus... Until that hour arrives and everything Jesus does is heading towards that hour. So, for example, in chapter 7, verse 30, it says, The Jews were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It says it again in verse, chapter 8, verse 20. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. All the way up to the point when we arrive in chapter 12... Verses 23 to 27, Jesus finally says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then a little bit later, he speaks to his father in chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. It's the hour of his death. So when we return to Jesus' words to his mother, we see more clearly why Jesus would distance himself from her. He had decided to help with the wedding feast. That's clear in that he goes on to make the provision. He goes on to do the miracle. But that decision to help was not on Mary's terms. It was on his heavenly father's terms. He wanted his mother to see that what he's about to do is on his heavenly father's terms. Jesus' glory is not revealed through the promptings of earthly family members, but through abiding in his father's will. Mary and every one of us must see that if we are to understand the gospel. We must see this father-son dynamic if we are to understand the message of salvation because an essential part of the good news is that the father sent his son into the world and that the son remained obedient to the father even to the point of death on a cross that God might be glorified and that we might be forgiven. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God sent His Son that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus says in John chapter 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus does everything on His Father's terms. And that's behind His words to Mary. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, are words that are meant to point her to something far greater than meeting the need of the hour. Which brings up the second truth and helps us understand the miracle he's about to perform at Cana. So the first truth was that Jesus does everything on his heavenly Father's terms. The second truth is that Jesus' earthly ministry anticipates God's glorification on the cross. Jesus, everything Jesus does in his earthly ministry is anticipating God glorifying himself on the cross. Everything Jesus does leading up to his death anticipates what God achieves through Jesus' death, namely his own glorification. We just saw that in John's gospel, Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. But the hour of his death is also, simultaneously, the hour of God's glorification. That's why we heard Jesus say earlier in chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The cross is where God reveals His glory most supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's where the glory of God's holiness shines most brilliantly in that the cross proves God alone is worthy of all our adoration and praise. It's where the glory of His justice against rebels speaks most loudly in that it required the death of His eternal Son in their place. It's where the glory of God's wrath is displayed most supremely in that Jesus absorbed in three hours the wrath which sinners must endure for an eternity. It's where the glory of His grace toward undeserving people sings most lovely in that every provision for our salvation is made at once. It's the glory of God's It's where the glory of God's love is manifested most tangibly in that He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. Before Jesus lays down His life for our sins, He prays to the Father in John 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. The cross is where God displays His glory in the Son most supremely. So everything leading up to the cross also anticipates what God plans to reveal through the cross, namely His own glory. To put it another way, the more glimpses we can get of Jesus' glory before He dies, the more we'll help to see God's glory when he dies. Seeing Jesus' greatness before his crucifixion helps us see God's greatness through the crucifixion. This is why John testifies at the end of verse 11, once the miracle has been performed, that Jesus manifested his glory. Jesus was right to tell his mother that his hour had not yet come because he wanted her to see God's glory all the more clearly when his hour did come. And we get the same benefit. Now, when we take these two truths, that Jesus does everything on His Father's terms, and that Jesus' earthly ministry anticipates God's glorification, when we take those two truths, the miracle at Cana becomes more than just a mere turning of water into wine. It actually becomes an acted-out parable pointing to a much greater reality. Jesus has a pattern of doing this in John's Gospel. For example, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6, he then uses the provision, the miracle of physical food, to point to the greater provision of giving his life for the world. Or when he gives the blind man sight in chapter 9, he then uses the miracle of physical sight to point to the greater provision of physical, I mean spiritual sight, which leads to salvation. Or when, or when he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, he then uses the miracle of giving physical life to point to the greater provision of resurrection to eternal life. So we should expect the same with the miracle at Cana. Jesus uses one miracle, the changing of water into wine, to point to a much greater provision, namely the greater provision of joy and celebration over the salvation Messiah brings through His cross and kingdom. 
By changing the water into wine, Jesus gives us a picture that foreshadows what his hour, his death, the hour of his glorification, what his hour will ultimately bring. His hour will ultimately bring the beginning of a new age where we celebrate the true forgiveness of our sins and rejoice over the bountiful provision of Messiah's final kingdom. When Jesus does his Father's will unto his glorification on the cross, he inaugurates a new age where we celebrate the true forgiveness of our sins and rejoice over the bountiful provision of Messiah's final kingdom. There's a reason the stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification are mentioned in verse 6 and why Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars with water to the brim. The old order of Jewish law was now fulfilled in Christ's coming. The time had come for Messiah to bring His kingdom where ceremonial washing was no longer necessary because a cross would wash away sins forever, would make people clean forever. That's what 1 John 1.7 tells us Jesus' blood does. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Or Titus 2.14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, to cleanse. Same word here. To cleanse, to purify himself, for Himself a people for His own possession. This is the taste of glory that John wants us to see through the miracle at Cana. The glory of Jesus in the new age set in motion by His cross and resurrection is far better than the glory mediated in the old age. Messiah's death actually brings true cleansing from all all our sin and guilt, something the ceremonies under the law could never really do. So now the time had drawn near to replace the ceremonial waters with the wine of celebration. Why go for wine? Right, Jesus? And the good stuff at that. Jesus told them, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and apparently somewhere between verse 8 and verse 9 comes wine. They took it, and it says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. So why provide such an abundance of good wine at a simple wedding party? That, obvious, that obviously replaces the water that's in the jars. Why do this? Answer, to point us to the wine of another wedding party in the age to come. Where we celebrate the forgiveness of sins. And where we see the eternal joys of another kingdom. He's doing it to point us to the fulfillment of all the promises God made about the nations coming to celebrate salvation. 
which is found in Messiah and his kingdom. In the Old Testament, references to wine often signaled one of two things, either judgment or salvation. And mourning was associated with judgment. And gladness was associated with the wine of salvation. So, for example, in Joel, chapter 1, verses 5 to 16, you get this picture of Israel sitting under God's judgment, and the prophet Joel paints this picture. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. That's what sitting under God's judgment looks like. Sitting under God's judgment for sin. No wine, no bounty, no gladness, no celebration. But the opposite is true as well in the Old Testament. When the Lord saves his people, the wine, the bounty, the gladness, the celebration returns. And the day of salvation is, in that, that day of salvation, is normally associated with God's decisive action through His Messiah. So, what you get are these amazing promises throughout the Old Testament that just blow your mind. Like, they're not even, they're creating categories that you normally don't think in. So, let's look at a few of them. The, the, the degree of provision in these promises and the degree of gladness is, is just, you, you can't contain it. All right? That's why we need new bodies in the new heaven and new earth. So let me read some of them to you. First, turn with me to Genesis 49. Remember, Jesus, Jesus is the one told about, spoken about in the law and in the prophets. Let's go to the law. Genesis 49. That's page 42 of the Pew Bible. Genesis 49. And I want you to look with me at verse, verses 8 to 11. Okay, so you have in the last, this is a, a text about speaking about what's going to happen in the last days. We see that in verse 1. And then verse 8. You see, this one is supposed to come from Judah, right? Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? So Judah's like a lion. And look at what it says about this, about who's to come. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff 
from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, of the nations. So we're looking at a messianic figure whose rule will cover the earth. And then look what's associated with his kingdom. Binding his foal to the vine, think grapevine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Does that even register with your spiritual taste buds? Or have you just grown used to thorns and sweat? Of a cursed ground. Genesis 49 foresees a day when a son from the tribe of Judah will establish his reign. And during that reign, you can let the donkey graze freely on the vineyard. That's how prosperous it will be. Wine will be so plentiful that it's even used in your washing machine. In an agrarian society, you're, you're, you're crazy talk at this point. This is exuberant abundance that's associated with the kingdom. Then go with me to Isaiah 25. Let's go to the prophets. So this promise in the law starts coming up again in the prophets. Isaiah 25, which is also a text that we talked a little bit about because Paul quoted it in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about Jesus overcoming death. Isaiah 25, we'll start in verse 6, associated with God's salvation. These are some of the things it says here. We'll go from 6 to 8. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, rich, a, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations." He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So with the final defeat of death, which Paul tells us happens through Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead, with the final defeat of death, God promises to prepare a feast for his people to celebrate his final victory over death in the kingdom. Now go a couple more to Jeremiah. Or next, the next one I mean. Jeremiah, next prophet over. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 is also the passage where we see the new covenant for the people of God, which Jesus says in Matthew 22 and Luke, no, Luke 22 and Matthew 26, he ratified with his own blood on the cross. So same chapter, listen to 
what the Lord also associates with that deliverance. Uh, Chapter 31, verses 10 to 14. Page 659 in the Pew Bible. Chapter 31, verse 10. Listen to this promise. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. So we've got a shepherd here. And will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed and redeemed. So we have a shepherd who's redeeming his people. Has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. We're going, we're going back to Eden and better at this point. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. (laughs) That's good stuff. This is the promise. This is the promise of celebration when a shepherd comes to redeem his people. One more. Turn next to Amos chapter 9. Right before Micah, right after Joel. Amos chapter 9. Look in verse 11. You can find it on page 771 of the Pew Bible. Same passage, this is just to note the same passage that James the Apostle quotes in Acts 15 to talk about the Gentiles being welcomed into the community of faith through the gospel. We're still dealing with Jesus here in these words. So what else is associated with, with this inclusion of the Gentiles through the gospel? It says, the Lord says, in that day I'll raise up the booth of David... That has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So, what is the Old Testament promise? A ruler is going to come from Judah. He will gather the nations like a shepherd. He will make provision for his people in redemption. And then he will bring them into a kingdom to celebrate that redemption. That's the promise. 
By making provision for the deficiencies of an unknown bridegroom in John chapter 2, Jesus is acting out a parable that points to the provision of his death and his coming messianic kingdom. A kingdom that begins with the hour of his glorification on the cross and reaches its completion when all the saints can say, as they do in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and her bride has made herself ready. Do you get the picture here? Jesus came from heaven to purify you from all your sins that you might then participate in the blessings and the abundance of the Messiah's kingdom. Don't get caught up in petty talk over whether or not Jesus is encouraging us to drink wine here. Yes, wine is okay when constrained by love for neighbor and holiness before God. You shouldn't get drunk. But that totally misses the point. Changing the water into wine points to something greater here. Not a day when we're all intoxicated with wine, but a day when we're all intoxicated with joy. Joy over the purification from our sins. Not an age in which we're finding satisfaction in a bottle, but a day in which we're finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The fullness of His kingdom is yet to come on earth, but the celebration already began when He died on the cross and God raised Him from the dead on the third day. Confirming that the cross has really taken away our sins and the celebration is coming. So don't let the world dupe you with its empty invitations to the bar and to the chat rooms and to the get-rich-quick schemes and to whatever else the world is inviting you to. Overcome the world's invitations to lust and pride and greed and power by receiving John's invitation to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's he's extended an invitation to a better, better party and a better kingdom and a better place of fellowship with God. A better feast where all your desires are eternally and maximally satisfied. Don't let sin fool you with its promises to satisfy your desires now. Fight sin with, what do the Puritans call it? The expulsive power of a new affection. A new affection for glory in messianic joy. Let Jesus' glory as your Messiah and joy giver so fill your soul that the fight against sin becomes a fight for joy in God, a fight for more satisfaction in God, a fight for more celebration in Jesus. When sin raises its ugly head, hearken to John's invitation. Run and see Jesus' glory as the bringer of messianic joy. He's bringing a kingdom that uses wine in the dishwasher and gold as asphalt in the streets. And he's removed every obstacle standing between you and God in that kingdom by dying for your sins on the cross. Providing ultimate purification. That's a true satisfying Savior. 
And he stands ready to save you now. To forgive you now. To satisfy you now if you will have him by faith. Verse 11 shows us that seeing the miracle means nothing unless you see the glory of Jesus Christ through the miracle and believe in his name. So I'm going to invite you with John to believe in Jesus this morning. All of you. To believe in Jesus this morning. Don't turn to rituals this week to overcome your sin. Turn to Jesus who is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't view the Christian life as dull this week. Well, I guess I'll take up my cross again and follow Jesus. You know. Well, I guess I'll serve my son at 3 o'clock in the morning for the fourth time. I mean, the kingdom and glory are before you. And they're yours. They're all yours in Christ. Puts a new perspective on discipleship, doesn't it? You sacrifice nothing when you come to Jesus. You gain everything. The whole kingdom's in front of you. Your sins are forgiven. So celebrate with your Messiah and his victory over the cross and his, his victory in the cross and his kingdom. He came to bring you joy. That's what he says in John 15. Why he writes, why he says these things, why he teaches us these things. These things I speak to you that your joy may be, that your joy, my joy, he says, may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 15, 11. He even, if you're not joyful this morning, he even stands ready to hear your prayers, to hear your cries to him for joy. Just like he says in John chapter 16, verse 24, until until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, I thank you for our Messiah, our Christ and Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought us into fellowship with you through his blood. And I thank you for the outpouring of your grace in the forgiveness of our sins that we might celebrate and look for the kingdom to come in its fullness where we will sing and dance like never before. But may you help us, I pray, pray that you would help us not wait until that day to begin the celebration, but that today would be the day when we sing over the forgiveness of our sins and ultimate purification. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.